Bovard. I'm Josh Hammer. I'm Emily Jashinsky. And I'm Ben Weingarten. And this is NatCon Squad, where common good and common sense meet. NatCon Squad is produced by the Edmund Burke Foundation, the home for national conservatism. Subscribe now on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, so welcome back, everybody. It's a rainy Tuesday afternoon, and we have a bunch of fun topics to discuss. Um, we're going to lead with maybe the hottest of topics, which is the release of the Twitter files last week. Ben's going to walk us through that. And then we're going to get into some of the end of year shenanigans on Capitol Hill. Uh, Emily's going to talk about uh, a potential immigration amnesty uh, deal that's bubbling over. And then Josh is going to talk about <laughs> more ways in which the lame dot Congress can let us down. And then I'm going to talk a little bit of a big, big tech angle uh, and how uh, big tech is responding to an actual substantive threat uh, to Congress acting against content on their platform. Um, so with that, I'll kick it over to Ben. Thanks, Rachel. Yeah, the, the Twitter files, I think I want to open in covering this with a quote from the notorious uh, Molly Ball piece in time on the 2020 election, which I would call a confessional of sorts for the ruling class. And in that piece, she writes that a, quote, well-funded cabal of powerful people ranging across industries and ideologies, working together behind the scenes to influence perceptions, steer media coverage, and control the flow of information is what transpired in 2020. And I think in Twitter files, we see another piece of that, but also with the government layered into this cabal as well. And I think what we see in Twitter files is just another example, but perhaps with uh, some of the most smoking of smoking guns here, government directing big tech to censor. And that's a First Amendment violation. And I pray to God that a Republican House, at least, actually attempts to do something about it. Uh, on top of what we've seen, of course, with these uh, this amazing suit filed by the attorneys general from Louisiana uh, and Missouri as well. But all that aside, I think there are three ways to walk through the Twitter files. One is kind of the substance of the files. The second is the backlash against Elon Musk for having uh, released them and paying 40 plus billion dollars to be the world's greatest whistleblower, essentially. Uh, and then what it all represents in the broader scheme of things. So on the substance, obviously, the files show a number of interesting revelations about how censorship worked in real time within Twitter. Uh, one aspect, of course, is that Matt Taibbi, who was selected to unveil these files and comb over them, shows us smoking gun evidence of Twitter receiving incoming requests from the Biden campaign to quash tweets and certain accounts as well. And we know that they had done this via cutout sort of by proxy through this election integrity partnership where a third party pseudo think tank of academics was taking requests from various parts of the national security apparatus to censor tweets and related accounts, but this is a direct line of communication, Biden campaign to Twitter, and then evidence that they did in fact censor on the basis of those requests. Other aspects of it are after the Hunter Biden piece comes out and Twitter makes the call to censor it, that internally uh, there was discombobulation essentially between the so-called safety and integrity folks and the comms team, and basically questions internally of what are we basing this policy on and are we actually on firm footing? How do we justify uh, this policy, especially after, of course, Twitter justified this on grounds of we're not going to print 
sort of hacked and leaked materials. But of course, they have done so in the past, particularly with respect to Donald Trump. Uh, there you have James Baker, former FBI general counsel who was central to much of Russiagate himself, providing legal advice, erring on the side of censorship within these tweets. Uh, beyond that, you then have Ro Khanna <laughs> expressing his concern really more about how this would look and the uproar that it was creating on Capitol Hill, perhaps than the substance of it, which I think is worth noting. Uh, and then others on the Capitol Hill, right and left, the left upset with Twitter because they actually did allow any such information to ever make it into the platform. And those on the right, of course, for the fact that they were crushing dissenting accounts, including of Kaylee McEnany and many others as well during this whole time. So there are all these different threads associated with this. I did think one of the notable quotes to come out of it was Yoel Roth, who was one of the chief censorship officers there. He says something to the effect of, and I'll see if I can find in real time. He said, quote, given the severe risks here and lessons of 2016, we're erring on the side of including a warning and preventing this content from being amplified. Well, what were the severe risks and what were the lessons of 2016 that Twitter saw? And I think the severe risk was that Donald Trump could potentially win again. And that the lesson was you can't allow derogatory information about someone going against Donald Trump. The risks are too high. That would be my take on it. So we have this whole litany of revelations that come out of these uh, tweets. We see Democrats themselves on the on the Hill being quoted as saying essentially that they're for censorship outright and for crushing dissenting voices from the right. And then, of course, again, this is layered on top of what we know about the Biden administration pushing for COVID-19 associated censorship, the aforementioned revelations from the Louisiana slash Missouri lawsuit on how government worked hand in hand. And you had Twitter and Facebook executives, as The Intercept revealed, meeting weekly, essentially, with executives from the likes of Twitter and Facebook to talk about their concerns about dangerous mis dis and malinformation and on and on. So obviously, this shows you, I think, the coordination between our state, big tech, and of course, the media, which itself refused to dig in on the Hunter Biden story and was cheering on the censorship, all working together to collude when they felt that their power and or privilege might be protected. I think you have First Amendment violation by proxy. And then the backlash, of course, here against Matt Taibbi and Elon Musk is almost a footnote. But I think it is very notable that what you have here is a backlash against the revelations, the indictment, essentially, of this censorship regime that they all were a part of. Uh, they are aghast, and as I've argued for months now, feared Elon Musk's takeover precisely because he threatened to take one major slice of the pie of control over the digital public square out of the hands of the regime itself. And I joked on Twitter about this, but it might hold. We might get more revelations of ruling class tyranny out of what comes out of Twitter files here and subsequently than we do out of, say, the Durham special counsel. And I sort of say that tongue in cheek, but it might actually prove true. And that's one of the reasons why he's under assault. And Taibbi, for being a traitor to the leftist journalist class, himself has been savage for this. So with all that out there, I'm curious, what do, what do you all make of the revelations here? And what do you think kind of the follow on is going to be from this? I'm curious, there's allegedly like other another more to come, right? We've heard that there is going to be uh, more Twitter files specific to COVID, uh, which I think is going to be very interesting. But one of the interesting things for me to watch has been the reaction of a lot of journalists immediately who are like, 
oh, this is, there's nothing new here, right? There's not, we already knew all of this. And I would submit that what's new here is the fact that everything the right was saying was happening is happen was, was actually happening. This is like confirmation of long disputed details that the Biden campaign was making requests to Twitter. And you saw how quickly and clearly those things were handled, right? You, I think there was one email that said, you know, received from the Biden team. And immediately the response was handled literally like, and this wasn't just the Biden or Biden campaign, sorry. Uh, you know, warning the warning Twitter about categories of content or complaining about categories. It was specific tweets that they were asking to be taken down, which I just think is, is, is crazy. But I think the last the big the biggest takeaway too here is that even if you want to start from the fact that there was no like major conspiracy if, if to ban the hunter biden laptop if that's your position you almost didn't need one right because everybody agreed everybody from the biden administration to the heads of twitter to you know yoel roth and all these people they all agreed with each other that you know that this shouldn't be made public. So you, and in, in when everyone agrees at the top who's in control here, you don't need a conspiracy. And I think that's the really dangerous part of all of this. So just a couple of quick notes, because I think Ben kind of aptly laid out what's going on here. I mean, I, I don't want to sound like, um, uh, you know, like a little like blase, but I mean, to be totally candid here, I, I view these you know, these revelations as not particularly new information. I mean, it was kind of just a corroboration of what many of us either knew or strongly suspected. I mean, kind of seeing these emails, you know, uh, redacted, obviously kind of laid out that clearly is jarring, but we we already knew this. I mean, we already knew, at, at least to a large extent, the extent to which the national security uh, apparatus was in cahoots with big tech to censor the Hunter Biden laptop story. I mean, all this does is it should make those of us who have been calling for big tech reform for years now just double, triple, quadruple, quintuple down in all of our convictions. You know, on this show a few months ago, we spoke extensively about this lawsuit from Missouri and Louisiana from Attorneys General Schmidt, soon to be Senator Schmidt, and Landry against kind of the Biden administration, exposing uh, the extent to which the Biden administration and big tech are kind of collaborating um, and, and did so with respect to kind of COVID so-called misinformation and so forth there. Look, these platforms fundamentally at this point are not private actors operating in even remotely good faith. They are ruling class, public sector adjacent at best, and, you know, frankly, kind of full on really public at worst, and they should be constitutionally treated as such. I'm up next, so I'll just be really fast <laughs> and say, I'm, I'm reading a, a a tweet that Michael Tracy put out, um, actually pretty pretty recently where he showed evidence that y'all Roth was meeting with federal law enforcement fairly regularly, um, which again, they make this all seem entirely innocuous. This is what we do as a company to safeguard the product and to safeguard users from the scourge of mis and disinformation and uh, from you know disinformation as warfare, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but the results of that in this case speak for themselves. It turned out to be utter BS, right? Like that's not what happened in this case. The story was absolutely correct. Uh, if you look at what the Bi what Biden was saying at the time, he cited that law enforcement letter. Fifty law enforcement people in a debate, he said, have come out and said this has all the hallmarks of Russian intelligence. Um, and you you know pretty much why law enforcement is meeting with Yoel Roth. You know why they're talking to Mike, Mark Zuckerberg, and you know why they're uh, sending letters like that so quickly. And they mobilize pretty fast to get that letter out there. Um, um, in October 2020. And so I think it's all pretty clear what's going on here. Now, on that note, speaking of 
things being pretty clear uh, in in Washington that we have news just we're taping this on Tuesday in the last 24 hours that a bipartisan uh, bipartisan I say that with a smile on my face or in my voice if you're listening to this framework for immigration reform I also say that with a smile on my face um, is being kicked around Congress in the lame duck session it is a framework that's moving around um, with support from Tom Tillis and Kirsten Cinema. They have reached an agreement, according to the Washington Post, that jumped on the story on Monday afternoon. They Tillis and Cinema are in agreement on what that draft framework framework would look like. I'm reading here from Axios, um, a pathway to citizen, citizenship for two million dreamers. Everybody remembers the dreamers from the Obama administration. Roughly 25 billion to 40 billion. That's a huge range, by the way. In increased funding for border patrol and border security, including a commitment to hiring more agents and increasing their pay, an extension of Title 42 until a former plan is in place to, formal plan is in place to stop an expected surge of migrants at the border. And then I love this last bullet point in the Axios write-up. An overhaul of the asylum system to prevent abuse of the law. First of all, the last bullet, if we take the last bullet first, that is literally the most important thing when it comes to immigration. Migrants are trained by coyotes um, to claim asylum and to do it with very precise language. Um, and so it makes the trafficking process much easier for the cartels, because as people travel through Central America, South Central America into Mexico, um, they know that they have a really good chance of getting in. So more and more people become customers for the coyotes. Um, and so to overhaul the asylum policy uh, would be, I mean, that is like the biggest thing um, other than border security. That is that is border security. Um, and a lot of it happens without any illegal crossing. This is just with people turning themselves in and claiming asylum. Um, all of that can happen. And by the way, the Biden administration right now has quotas on Cubans and Venezuelans that can claim asylum in this country. Think about the fact that there are people who are faking asylum claims um, when they're really economic migrants, people who want a better life and for very good reason, um, and are gumming up the system willfully on our part. We're letting it happen, um, lining the pockets of cartels on their way. And by the way, Cubans and Venezuelans who are fleeing um, with legitimate asylum claims are being quoted. So it's just a complete and total disaster. The fact that they're kicking around this framework in the lame duck session, and it, it's completely vague at this point, but includes um, amnesty for dreamers that Obama created with like the wave of his magic EO wand um, doesn't instill any confidence. This could go in many different directions. We don't know exactly where it's going, but I think the fact that this is uh, even being being talked about right now by Tom Tillis um, is is remarkable. But again, we don't know where this will go. It just looks like it's going in a very, very bad direction. I like to refer to these amnesty deals as the classic of the lame duck. It's like every lame duck, they're like, this is it, guys. We're going to do it now. This is it. And I just think, you know, coming back to a theme that I think I've said before, but it's just very telling that the Republicans just un underperformed substantially in the midterms. And then the first things they do when they come back are, you know, vote out a a bill that puts a target on the back of every religious conservative in America. And then you have Tom Tillis joining with Kristen Cinema to uh, try to pass amnesty. Like, are you kidding? Um, I do think that 
like you mentioned asylum laws, I do think that that is something that has to be addressed, but I'm, I'm done as a, as a matter of, of principle and also policy with these massive bipartisan deals. Uh, the next Republican majority has to take these issues one at a time and take them seriously. I'm not doing amnesty anymore ever for in exchange for anything. Yeah. I mean, nor should you. And look, I mean, I'm going to do our next segment after this, which will just be kind of a broader, more sweeping segment on the various perfidies and traitorous actions of the Republican Party as pertains to kind of selling out their voters. But, you know, I I, I, I just don't have words for this, honestly. I, I mean, look, this kind of reeks of the 2012 autopsy, the infamous autopsy after the Romney-Ryan collapse, or one of the things that the RNC said was that we have to be nice on immigration, whatever. So, uh, you know, Republicans have a setback, or at least they don't do nearly as well as they should have done in last month's midterm elections. And sure enough, here we are again with another, you know, bipartisan 1986-style, you know, amnesty proposal here. But uh, there's just so much wrong with this picture. I don't even really know where to begin. I mean, for starters, the Republican Party started doing better with minorities, with Hispanics and black voters over the past six years in the era of Donald Trump, in the era of, you know, we're going to stop all Muslim immigration until we can figure out what the hell is going on. I mean, like that was the guy. I mean, who? I'm not giving Trump all the credit, but he deserves a lot of credit, obviously, for calling it like it is on the immigration issue, a total no BS, you know, uh, build the wall platform, obviously did not fully live up to that, but that was certainly his platform. And that platform in, in multiple elections attracted you know, previously hitherto unprecedented levels of Hispanic and black voters. And those trends continued, actually, in 2022, albeit on a slower trajectory than many were expecting, with some exceptions like here in Florida. But I, I just don't have words for the kind of K Street consultant that is able to kind of snooker useful idiots like Tom Tillis of North Carolina to convince that, like, now is the time, that now is the time to try to get this backdoor amnesty provision in there. And look... Another point that I want to make as well, because um, I know Ben has a lot to say on this topic as, as well, the very fact that the media is able to get away with calling recipients of Obama's unconstitutional 2012 DACA amnesty dreamers is itself egregious. Um, the term dreamers, as it's, as it's actually put in the mainstream press, is usually capital D and then all lowercase to make you literally think that these are just kind of young, innocent dreamers, people who are dreaming. You know, I, I hate to sound so pedantic, but the origin of that term dreamers is obviously the DREAM Act, a failed piece of legislation from the first term of the Obama presidency. And as Democrats are much better at Republicans than doing, they name these bills, obviously, an incredibly kind of sweeping, you know, mellifluous, kind of a pleasing to the ears fashion. And then they get the corporate press who is so always eager to chomp at the bid and do the Democrats bidding. So the, the, the fact now, I got a Twitter squabble about this earlier this week with Greg Sargent of the Washington Post. And, you know, one of their usual lines is, what do you have against people who are dreaming, dreamers? I mean, that framing is ridiculously telling. It's what lawyers would call a leading question in and of itself here. But I mean, between that and just the, this 2012 autopsy redux, I mean, talk about failing to learn the right lessons here. Um, so it, it really just stinks to high heaven, honestly. Yeah, this points to uh, the an argument that I'm not even sure if you could call the Republicans controlled opposition at this point. They're just in large part controlled, at least when it comes to the establishment, certainly not oppositional. Uh, let's not forget, of course, that the left that loves to harp on how illegitimate the Supreme Court is, well, this Supreme Court upheld DACA, uh, even knowing it was unconstitutional, 
on technical terms and ruled against Trump on those grounds, uh, which was a disastrous ruling in every single respect. This is horrible politics, as Josh noted, because the voters have rewarded those who take a firm line on national sovereignty and our border security, which is, of course, a part of natural national security, social cohesion and simply respect for the law. Uh, beyond that, this will, of course, once again, be amnesty first enforcement. Never. Even if you beefed it up with one hundred billion dollars. You still have to have an executive who is willing to actually execute the laws faithfully. And we don't have that, of course. Uh, and he won't be impeached on these grounds, even though he deserves to be, as you know, GOP leaders have already effectively telegraphed. So all around, this is disastrous. But I think it speaks to something that we've talked about before, which is a tension between the base and then the party leaders and the party rank and file, for that matter. But then the discouraging aspect of this is, Look, if tens of millions of Americans are enraged about these policies to the extent they're aware of them, then why did incumbents do so well this cycle? And obviously, incumbency advantage is baked into our system, but there needs to be a compelling slate of alternative candidates who are better funded than they have been, and they need to go out and sweep the bums out of office. And that, in the end, is the only recourse that we have as a people against these disastrous policies where the establishment tells us one thing in the middle of a campaign, governs separately and stabs us in the back repeatedly. We've seen the failure theater over and over again. We've seen these sorts of betrayals over and over again. The only response is to throw them out. On that note, Josh, I think you're up. Okay, so I mean, this is a pretty seamless transition from segment to segment here. I just kind of want to give a slightly kind of broader perspective as to what is going on in this lame duck Congress here. So, I mean, it is... It is just truly egregious beyond any possible, even mildly polite phrasing that Republicans are apparently teaming up on an amnesty deal of this nature there. Um, I mean, just to stipulate the obvious, I mean, what Rachel said of, uh, about the asylum provision is, of course, correct. Um, U.S. asylum law is absolutely riddled with myriad flaws and egregious loopholes. Actually, way back in the day when I was um, a first year Law student that summer, I actually worked for Senator Michael of Utah's Senate Judiciary Committee staff. I remember writing kind of like a, a I can't remember the number of pages, but like a legal memo on this exact topic, actually. So um, there is just massive, massive harm that needs to be rectified when it comes to the asylum process there. But obviously, that does not in any way justify setting at least 2 million illegal aliens on a path to full legalization and ultimately, as we all know, full citizenship which, as we all know, based on the rhetoric and, and increasingly just the very clear black letter policy platform of the Democratic Party and Democratic leadership, there is precisely zero chance they would ever stop at 2 million. The goal, of course, is to legalize all of the various folks who are in this country illegally, which, as anyone with a, even a modicum of common sense could tell you, will simply have the effect of empowering the Western Hemisphere's absolute worst, most vicious transnational cartels, trafficking rings. I mean, that that has always been the grandest, greatest, most tragic irony of the immigration debate is that the so-called humanitarian folks, it thinks that the, the people who think that they are just helping by these open borders policies and rhetoric and their various amnesty proposals, all they are doing is exacerbating conditions for the folks who are trafficked by these horrific cartels, coyotes, drug mules, things of that nature as well there. So 
The fact that this is happening is also egregious. I want to call to mind for the listeners and viewers as well, a topic that we have previously covered on this show, which is the so-called Respect for Marriage Act, which of course sailed through the Senate. Um, you know, I think many of us thought there was a chance that uh, fewer than 10 Republicans might, uh, you, you know, join with this uh, dystopian measure, uh, you know, this this statute that codifies an erroneous definition of marriage and and, and foists it onto the people. And as and as Rachel has accurately said, has a, a, a litigation component here that would effectively put a gun to the head of religious folks, folks like Lori Smith, who was at the U.S. Supreme Court this week in the 303 creative case for a marriage design website out of Colorado there. So, you know, I mean, just again, just talk about learning the wrong lessons. I mean, the, the complete wrong lessons, um, whether whether it's the immigration context, whether it is the culture war context. And, you know, I, as we say time and time again on this show, those culture war issues, they are not losing issues for Republicans as long as they pick them prudentially, as long as they communicate them effectively, and as long as they fight them along strategic lines. There are so many data points now that point towards that, none greater perhaps than here in Florida, where um, you know DeSantis and his fellow culture warriors in the Florida GOP have single-handedly transformed this state from a purple state to a red state there. Some other things that are going on also in the background, um, you know, in the aftermath of the election last month, the Biden administration has requested an additional $38 billion in supplemental aid to Ukraine. Um, we have yet to vote on uh, the annual uh, NDAA, the National Defense Authorization Act. Who knows what kind of unaccountable pork for Vladimir Zelensky and um, those folks will get snuck into this provision. I, for one, am not particularly optimistic about it. And then yet another thing, that I guess I'll lump into this kind of catch-all, just, you know, let's all sling mud at the wall style segment here. Um, one other thing that a friend of mine on Capitol Hill flagged for me maybe a week, week and a half ago or so, um, there is an increasing effort, or at least there, there, there was an effort after Andy Biggs announced that he was putting his name forward uh, to potentially challenge Kevin McCarthy. There was this effort by folks like Don Bacon, the very establishment Republican congressman from Nebraska and various other kind of establishment-minded allies who went out a limb and then explicitly said that they would rather work with Democrats to get Kevin McCarthy confirmed for the speaker seat rather than work with, you know, those icky Freedom Caucus folks, folks like Chip Roy of Texas. So I, I think no matter where you look at it right now, um, the Republican Party is just selling out its own voters. Um, it appears that Ronna McDaniel, who just oversaw um, this third disappointing election in a row. It appears that she is the favorite right now um, to uh, be reelected as RNC chair. Harmeet Dillon is, is in the race now. Um, it appears like Lee Zeldin is going to get in the race as well. So it's possible that Ronna McDaniel loses that race. In my estimation, she should lose that race. If I were a voting member, I would certainly try to vote her out. Um, but I guess I'll just get off my soapbox now. Um, and I guess my question for you guys is, why does the Republican Party hate its own voters so much? And what does it say, frankly, about the character and the integrity or lack thereof of the people who run this party, who just disdain their own support base this much? This is, I think, you know, an ongoing theme of the last decade of Republican politics. You know, I would argue that it started with the Tea Party, right, where you had this revolt of the grassroots against the elite leadership of the party that lesson went unlearned, so they sent Donald Trump to Washington as sort of a nuclear missile to say, you didn't hear this the first time, you know, listen to us now. And yeah, you know, I think it's kind of appalling to me that, 
you know, Republicans just did as poorly as they did and, and nothing has changed in our in our leadership. Um, you could argue that some of our leaders have been weakened, but I will say one positive aspect of this is Kevin McCarthy is in the fight for his life. Um, and I think it's, you know, the thing that you talked about, which is this idea that we, a, a Republican speaker could cut deals with Democrats to get its priorities across the finish line. That ended John Boehner's career. And I, I you know, think at the the narrow majority that exists in the House, Kevin McCarthy is walking a tightrope that doesn't allow him to do that. So, you know, I do think that McCarthy is is politically more talented than Boehner or Paul Ryan. And so I, I hope he intrinsically understands this. But, you know, I we are in a position where the gap between where the base sits and where the leadership of the party sits, it, it continues to widen. And not only it's a mutual loathing, right? The elites sort of are embarrassed by their own voters and the voters know that. So how we fix that personally is that we have to change our agenda. We have to bring things to the floor that people care about. We have to feel, allow people to feel represented again by the things that we pursue as party priorities. Um, that's a work in progress. We definitely are not there. I think it's interesting to consider uh, basically the the frog in the boiling pot metaphor here. I think Republicans are at a real lack of new ideas. Like how many innovative numbers-based solutions did we get in the aughts to entitlements, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, and really, you know, there were people kind of turning out work in the background over at some of the youth groups and the more culturally focused groups about what could be done to higher education, et cetera. But the Republican Party now is looking back on 60 plus years of just decay. And in order to fix it, you can't have the sclerotic party. You, you can't find a way to bridge the gap between Mitch McConnell and the Freedom Caucus on any meaningful basis. And that's not so much the fault of the Freedom Caucus as it is the fault of, of Mitch McConnell for not understanding that we're in a state of emergency, we're in a state of crisis, um, and that will demand new ideas, but it will demand fairly, by our standards now, radical new ideas. And I don't mean radical as though it's outside of the sort of uh, realm of reasonability. In fact, I think there are so many great legislative proposals, like maybe securing the border and not letting people in for any reason whatsoever that aren't radical. They're very, very reasonable by any sense of common sense. Um, and yet for Republicans and here in Washington, D.C., that is that is per perceived as being radical. Um, but really, when you look back over the sweep of history, it's perfectly reasonable. It's well within the realm of common sense common sense. And you can apply that to higher ed. You can apply that on down the line to a million different problems, even by reasonable conservative sort of free market standards, what we're seeing with big tech. Look at what Clarence Thomas said about common carrier. I mean, this stuff is not out of the realm of reasonability. Um, the Respect for Marriage Act was another really good example. Things have changed very quickly in this country. Um, uh, that is absolutely true. But uh, the conservative party um, should have some fidelity to some broader thing that we are conserving in the conservative movement. Um, and the fact that so many Republican senators don't seem interested in that is another thing. It, it just, you lack the perspective of time and lack the courage that comes with that perspective too. Because, and I said this at NatCon, when you put everything in the perspective, the full perspective of time, you can find courage and you can say, listen, we've tried a lot of new stuff. 
really quickly and we're getting really bad results, it's going to be really difficult. But if I, you know, take one stance here, um, even for the sake of politics, it'll probably age well. So, uh, you know, I, I think it's w- when you lack that on one side of the Republican Party, the establishment wing, it becomes very, very difficult um, to do anything on, for for instance, immigration other than reflexively just be like, "Ooh, bipartisan package. Let's bring it on. It'll be good. Um, so with that, I'll kick it over to Ben. Well, related to that, I mean, I, I'd be hard pressed to define, you know, what does the Republican establishment ultimately want and to what extent does it differ from where the Democrats are? Like, you know where Democrats are going to fall on virtually every single issue. They're all directionally pushing in the same direction, even if they have their more leftist wing and left less leftist wing. It's not at all clear to me that we have articulated necessarily what the ultimate conservative ends are, but it certainly would seem to be clear that for the establishment, they don't share anything remotely resembling those ends. And I think there are a lot of reasons for this. Part of them are just baked into the institutions themselves. People who wanna be at high levels of power uh, are gonna usually do things to grow that power in Washington, DC, not return it back to the governed. Uh, There are obviously all sorts of institutional pressures to get in line with a leadership that already probably had to compromise in many ways to get to those positions of power. And so if you want to be an effective lawmaker or have any say, you better get in line with that leadership. And then you have, of course, the corruption by being in Washington in and of itself. So all manner of baked in pressures, uh, which Democrats do not necessarily bend to, in part because, again, they're all moving directionally in the same way. Uh, but on our side, we face all of these inbuilt challenges. And you know, the one thing I would say, the optimistic side of this, the bright spot is the wider the gap grows between the people and their purported representatives, the greater the opportunity there is for political entrepreneurs to seize the day and break radically from it and develop a whole massive constituency to take on that establishment. So I'm going to talk about one other thing that's being considered in the lame duck. Uh, which is the Journalism Competition and Preservation Act, which is a piece of big tech legislation that's been sort of hanging out there for a couple of years. And Democrats are pushing to add it to, of all things, the National Defense Authorization Act, uh, simply because it is the must-pass vehicle before the end of the year. Now, this bill seems or seeks to address what I think is a legitimate problem, which is the fact that you know you have Facebook and Google in particular who monetize, meaning make a ton of ad revenue from content that is not their own, particularly the news. Um, and we know you know that this is the case also based on user behavior, right? Over the since the big tap platforms launched, they've become central nexus points for the distribution of news. It's very rare that people go to the New York Times website anymore, right? Much of the traffic to these. Um, to news goes through flows through uh, the tech platforms, meaning, and this has changed how the ad revenue is structured in this country, because if you're not going to the New York Times website, New York Times is not making money, right? And Facebook is instead monetizing or making money from all of this content they themselves don't create. So this bill seeks to rectify that imbalance by creating an antitrust carve out, by allowing uh, news organizations to collude for the purpose of negotiating with these platforms to make them to make Facebook and Google in particular, Twitter's too small to be considered in this bill, to make Facebook and Google pay for the privilege of of making money from other someone else's content. 
Now there's divisions in, in, within the right about the wisdom of this approach. Um, you know, I think Emily disagrees with it in the sense that, you know, and you can talk more about your objection, but it's shared by, you know, several other people, uh, members of Congress as well, that conservative media will be crushed in this relationship, right? <laughs> that, you know, Gannett and News Corp and all these sort of big news organizations have no incentive to work uh, and play nicely with, you know, Daily Caller or the Federalist or people like that. Um, you know, I'm sort of ambivalent about this bill in the sense that I think it's fairly small ball in terms of the issue, but I do think the problem is a legitimate one. If you don't want to address it this way, I think Mike Lee's uh, Google ad tech bill is another way to get at it, which actually breaks the cartel on ad tech and allows some competition in the marketplace. I think that would be a useful way to solve this problem as well. But what's interesting to me about this is Facebook's response to it, which is what I want to talk about. So Andy Stone, who's Facebook, uh, the for PR flack for Facebook slash Meta, put out a statement yesterday saying if Congress passes this bill, they will, quote, be forced to consider removing news from our platform altogether. And, you know, and he goes on about how, you know, careless this is, whatever. So I just want to be very clear. The Congress is attempting to establish a, you know, rules-based platform, uh, rules-based situation for how this negotiation is handled between news and the platforms. And Facebook is basically like, we will nuke the news. <laughs> and this is a kind of, we saw this play out in Australia. Um, if you remember, I think two years ago now, this exact, you know, not exact, but a very parallel issue was, was taking place. The, they were trying to force a negotiation between the news outlets and uh, the platforms. And Facebook did nuke news. They basically pulled down news from the country of Australia. You saw, and I think this speaks to how central and integral Facebook has become to our public communication and civil discourse, where you had schools, you know, lose information sharing abilities, fire, fire stations, you know, who had posted, you know, news and warnings stripped of their site. I mean, you had people actually scrambling uh, to communicate with one another because they were using Facebook as their hub to do so. And so I just think this speaks to the arrogance of the platforms that like any attempt, any attempt at all, you know, the, the merits of this attempt aside, any attempt, this is how they're going to respond. And I think lawmakers, this should be instructive. The the uh, method here is intimidation and it's just going to continue to ramp up. So as an object lesson and how big tech's going to handle this stuff, I think lawmakers need to be paying attention and be prepared for it and be prepared to oppose it. Um, very aggressively going forward, because this is going to be a battle, like a titanic battle uh, between the most powerful business interests in the country and Congress. So fight about the bill or this approach, whatever. <laughs> so I, I also don't have strong thoughts about this particular bill, to be totally honest with you. I guess that's why I was kind of uh, waiting for Emily to perhaps jump I was, in. I was waiting for Josh because I was like, we need a lawyer in here. <laughs> Um, no, I mean, I, I genuinely have not closely studied the bill. I mean, I, I think many of our allies on kind of the anti-big tech side, I'm using, you know, our friend Mike Davis at IAP definitely opposes this bill. Um, I think John Schweppe of American Principles Project uh, opposes it as, or, excuse me, I, they both support the bill, excuse me, they, they support the JCPA. Um, so, you know, I mean, like rebuttal presumption that when people like Mike and Schweppe are supporting a big tech related bill, like, um, here's your lawyerly language, Emily, rebuttal presumption that, that the law is correct. Um, I'm actually writing about this Australia approach soon for Julius Crine and American Affairs. I uh, have not done the level of research that I should have done by this time to kind of inform myself beforehand. So 
Um, I, that research I will, will come over the next few weeks, and we'll see what I can produce there. But I, I guess I'm, what, what, what I'm going to be looking at is whether the Australia model is particularly replicable to the U.S. And I think the empirical studies are only slowly starting to come in out of Australia. That that law was relatively recent, but um, you know the broader point here that that Rachel is making about um, you know the, the ability to kind of make money without paying any kind of of dues whatsoever there. That seems absurd on its face, and I guess I don't really understand what the counter is. I mean, I don't really understand the argument that that Facebook um, or Google should be permitted uh, to to monetize something um, just out in the open without having any kind of revenue sharing or split or anything like that to the underlying media organizations. Maybe that is the entire business model of social media, and maybe that business model is flawed. I don't know. There's a, there's a lot of kind of murky questions that get get raised here. Um, full disclosure, I have not published a single op-ed on this issue um, at Newsweek because I don't want to purport to speak for Newsweek um, on, on an issue that could potentially directly implicate Newsweek's bottom line. And so I've actually rejected many op-eds that both oppose and reject this bill because I just don't want anything to do with it from a Newsweek editorial perspective. Um, but, you know, Emily, I would definitely be curious or just genuinely interested, I guess, to hear what some of the objections are from kind of a smaller media outlet perspective. Yeah, and I am can't speak on behalf of the Federalists. I haven't um, actually talked to anybody about it uh, at the Federalist yet, but I think there are a lot of bad arguments um, against it. I think big tech is advancing a lot of bad arguments against the JCPA. I don't think that makes the arguments for it much better. Um, as much as I would love to crush big tech as, as, as much as the next person, um, but basically I have very little faith or confidence um, that they have any, that big media corporations will have any incentive to play nice with conservative operations, with conservative media, with independent media. There's a lot of definition inflation um, that's taking place in our institutions right now that disqualifies people um, for all kinds of reasons. Um, but many of them involve incitement, violence, misinformation, disinformation. And if we're starting to funnel millions of dollars. There's one estimate that says this will cost Facebook and Google like two billion bucks a year. It's really nothing for them. It's a drop in the bucket. It's a ton of money, but in their annual budgets, it's not um, you know, a death knell or anything like that, which is why Andy Stone is bluffing to Rachel's point. Um, that's money that goes into empowering, failing corporate media outlets that have not figured out what their business model should look like. They're, they're failing in the marketplace, many of them, um, for good reason. And the the ad platforms, I think, are much, much, much better sources um, of, of getting at this themselves. Like Rachel referenced the Lee bill, because we've experienced that the Federalist Google ads is essentially a monopoly. And it's it's an important product because, uh, or or double click what it bought uh, years and years ago is an important product because it was part of this revolution in advertising that finally made advertising efficient. You could target it, you could pinpoint it, um, and advertisers really like being able to use Facebook and Twitter. Now the real death knell would be taking uh, the the ability of these companies' data scraping operations, um, taking that away from them. That would be uh, hugely impactful um, just in general. But I think this is just going to be a basically a, a huge, if it, if it were to pass, which I don't think it would, a huge giveaway of money um, from big tech to corporate media outlets that will now have more money at their disposal that they lost in the marketplace um, to, to crush and uh, to, to, to crush and harm and undercut independent media and conservative media as well. 
So I'd say one thing that's difficult in evaluating the merits of this legislation is that I don't really trust uh, the statements on either side of it from most of the media sources, uh, potentially who are potentially going to benefit the most from it, as well as the big tech side of it. I do think that some sort of rebalance in that relationship uh, and or and the fact that it is adversarial and that the adversarial nature of it is going to be heightened by actually empowering one side relative to the other, that may prove to be a beneficial thing. Uh, I'm, I understand that the Cruz Amendment that was added previously uh, is a strong one in the sense that it helps to prevent, I think, ultimately ideological discrimination associated with the bill. Um, but that said, I would still argue, separate and apart from the merits of this legislation and how significant it is relative to other aspects of big tech that have to be uh, cordoned off and in many cases reduced from power perspective is there's still, I think, the overarching issue, the most important fundamental issue at the end of the day is First Amendment violations by proxy from our government and the fact that the government, the news media, the legacy news media that is, and the big tech companies in effect or organically are colluding and conspiring against their opponents. And that is, to me, definitional fascism. It imperils every other aspect of liberty and justice that we still cling to in this country. And so to me, that's where my focuses would lie. But that said, there could very well be merits to this. And it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. So with that, we can move to final thoughts. Um, I will kick it open for anybody who wants to start. I'll jump in just by um, tagging along to, or, or just adding to what we were talking about in Josh's segment about how hard it is to bridge the gap in the Republican Party and, and why we don't see Republicans like clamoring to push Democrats with with different pieces of legislation. Now, there's a lot of common sense legislation out there that that might feel too radical for a Republican. Sure, we were talking about that. Um, but also so many ideas just don't exist like they really don't exist on Capitol Hill. There's such a, a dearth of uh, fresh and original ideas. And that's why I really love American Compass. I love what Oren is doing with his team over there coming up with new solutions so that when and you have a railway crisis um, to the point where our supply chain is tested because people can't have unplanned sick leave. I mean, just insanely ridiculous. Um, when you have something like that happen, Marco Rubio is able to say, listen, I have a plan. It's modeled cl more closely with Europe. It would work better for it. it it's, it's not a big labor giveaway. Um, and it's not an anti-worker, it's middle ground. Um, so being able to have that kind of stuff at your fingertips um, is just incredibly important. And just time and again, um, it's not only that the media doesn't cover the conservative perspective, but uh, on Capitol Hill, there's just such a lack of interest in coming up with that stuff to begin with. And that's not everyone um, again, like Rubio's office has been busy coming up with some interesting stuff. Um, and you know, there's, there are other offices that I think we'll see interesting stuff out of, including JD Vance's, um, in the future, but man, it's just the Republican party. It has zero idea, um, you know, how dramatic, uh, how dramatically innovative and energetic it needs to be right now to do anything meaningful. And that's just on full display um, in the, the case of Tom Tillis jumping on the this uh, draft framework with Kirsten Cinema. 
Well, I think this is especially true too, when you look at the regression to the mean that's going on in terms of policy, right? You know, we talk about the, in the lame duck, we talked about, you know, we see the immigration deal, you know, a bunch of other stuff, but don't forget, you know, John Thune, who could very well replace Mitch McConnell at some point was on the record being like, oh yeah, you know, we're definitely going to try to cut social security and Medicare or, you know, quote unquote reform it, you know, in response to, you know, a debt ceiling negotiation or whatever. And it's just like unhelpful, right? Like, yes, we all agree that, you know, the solvency of these two things is an issue, but if you're going to go in and, and kind of make cuts right now, you know, not tied to anything else, like you've learned nothing. Um, and I think, frankly, there's got to be a lot more dialogue with these guys about these things, because otherwise we're going to see, you know, any, an agenda coming out of center Republicans that looks a lot like something that, you know, came, came about in 2010 or, or 2008. Um, so yeah, I think that's why, you know, the more we can talk to these guys, the better, frankly, in my opinion. So I want to highlight just briefly, um, one part of the exchange at Monday's oral argument in the 303 creative play case, um, which is a case that I did a whole segment on in a previous show. This is, uh, the case involving Lori Smith. It's kind of the logical natural successor to Jack Phillips. It's out of the same state, Colorado. It involves the same, um, anti-discrimination statute there in Colorado. Lori Smith is not baking a cake. She, she, she is designing a wedding website. And at some point in the course of oral argument, Justice Alito asks uh, the lawyer for the state of Colorado, who is defending the enforcement of this anti-discrimination law to uh, compel Lori Smith to design a website for a nuptial ceremony involving a homosexual couple that would violate her, her beliefs, her, her message, her conscience, all of that. And Justice Alito just straight up asked uh, the lawyer for, for Colorado whether it is the state of Colorado's position that opposition to same-sex marriage is equivalent to opposition to interracial marriage. And without missing a beat, the lawyer for the state of Colorado says yes. Says yes. Um, that is an eyes wide open, you know, kind of moment, I think, right? And this is exactly what Alito himself presciently indicated in his dissent from Obergefell, the same-sex marriage case in 2015. Chief Justice Roberts had the lead dissent in that case to the chief's uh, credit. Uh, Justice Thomas had a case kind of focusing doctrinally on substantive due process, but Alito really kind of was the one who, in his dissent, I think most presciently kind of outlines the culture war implications of this, and frankly, just the implications for anyone of faith who believes in the definition of marriage that had prevailed for thousands and thousands of years. And we have now reached the point at the U.S. Supreme Court um, you know, Don Verrilli, who was the Solicitor General under President Obama in the Obergefell oral argument, he conceded that tax exempt status might be on the table, uh, you know, for institutions that held to the traditional view of marriage during the Obergefell oral argument. At the time, that was viewed uh, properly uh, as a bit of kind of an eyes wide open moment. But I think what the state of Colorado is now openly and unambiguously arguing in the Supreme Court just takes that much, much further. This is really, really, really dangerous, harrowing stuff. Um, the silver lining here is that I do think this case is going to come out the right way, and it would not shock me if it comes out the right way by a surprisingly high margin, actually, like a seven to two or potentially even like eight to one kind of thing. But we'll see. I, I mean, all, you know, all that matters is is that Lori Smith wins. Uh, we'll take five to four, but you know, um, you know, this was definitely a moment worth highlighting. I think. 
Well, there's been a lot of demoralizing topics in this episode, and since I filibustered before, uh, I will point to one positive to come out of Washington recently. Uh, the Claremont Institute sponsored this event via Center for the American Way of Life. What should the GOP do now? Uh, I watched it with uh, rapt attention, particularly around issues of whether there ought to be a new church committee, uh, unsurprisingly, and what that church committee ought to look like. I'd commend everyone to check that out. There are actually some fresh policy solutions being proposed there uh, from people who actually do know what time it is and may be the ones to help bridge this gap or forge a new path forward between this ongoing fight that, as Rachel mentioned, has been through two turnings now, one, the Tea Party wave, two, Trump, and we'll see uh, what ultimately comes next over the next, say, four to 12 years. Um, but I uh, urgently commend you to check out that event because there's actually some inspiring thoughts, ideas, uh, new paths being forged forward worth checking out. And, you know, they inspired me, certainly. Uh, it's pretty much the only pick me up from this demoralizing episode. <laughs> <laughs> well, on that helpful note, Ben, <laughs> uh, on behalf of Emily, Ben, and Josh, thanks for joining us. I'm Rachel Bovard, and we'll see you on the next NatCon Squad. 